I mean, I haven't been at the tour, but you, you know the tour is just madness. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 35 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's never ridden the tour before until this year. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. A reminder that if you do like the show, I would really appreciate it if you took some time out to write a review on iTunes. Thank you very much. Also, I have recently reignited my Instagram account. It's my personal account, but I would actually love to see what everybody else is doing with their bike riding. I'd love to see pictures of rides, of bikes, of pain caves, anything that rocks your cycling world I'm interested in. I'd love to join up. I'm trying to take more pictures of my rides. You can see where I'm riding. Just search for my name on Instagram and we can connect that way. So the news this week and how can I go past starting with Richie Port and his win in Paris-Nice. Awesome stuff. It was so incredible to watch the second last stage when Talansky was trying to have a go and then finally burned his matches before Port stepped up and smashed them. It was the first time that I'd seen Port actually rip on it in a stage. Absolutely killed them. Put in... 20 plus seconds over a kilometer or so. I'm super excited about his prospects for the future. He really is starting to show his potential now. It's been a long road for him because Sky has really used him in the domestic role successfully for a couple of years, but now it's his time to shine. I know it's not going to be this year, but hopefully it'll be the Giro next year. He'll be team leader and he can really have a crack at a grand tour. I'm Super excited and looking forward to it. I can't wait. The other news, Nibali and Torino Adriatico. Awesome ride. Awesome, awesome ride. I was totally stoked that he won. He is a rider that has a lot of passion behind his riding. And that was even more evident after he was talking about Team Sky, the robots racing by numbers. So he came out and accused Sky of racing by numbers by using their SRM power meters to control their effort on important key climbs, where he indicated that Froome looked at his plastic SRM box on his handlebars more than he looked at his rivals. Damn, it's shaping up to be an awesome tour if Froome is the leader for Sky because Nibali's really going to eat at these guys that are riding on science alone. It's going to be exciting because he rides on passion. Contador rides on passion. And so we can see the contrast at play. But when it comes down to a team that is absolutely crushing it, you cannot go past Sky. They've stepped it up again this year. You wouldn't think that's possible. But now they've got their second and third tier riders coming up leading the team for smaller stage races and coming away with wins and podium places. It really shows that what they're doing, they're doing it right. And a lot of that comes down to their scientific approach to how they train and race for specific races. Teams now are starting to take note as to what they're doing. Is it going to kill racing? Nibali himself has called for power meters to be banned from racing to avoid this kind of robotic reaction and training in races 
Would it actually make the racing any better? I don't think it would actually make the racing any better. What do you think about it? Do you think the power meters should be banned? There is the chance that it could turn into F1. So we could just have everything done by numbers. It becomes very clinical, very stagnant. The interesting thing here is even Brailsford admitted this week that humans make mistakes, thus Froome not being on the top step of the podium. And when you are racing against people like Nibali that ride with so much passion and just let everything hang out while they're going for the win, then there are other factors that come into it and it's not just going to be about numbers forever. Brailsford has come out against this robots term that has been thrown around when it comes to Team Sky. Of course, they are super successful in the scientific training element where they're putting a lot of focus into the whole get there in December, ride the hills, work out everyone's role, work out what they're capable of, crunch the numbers, and then run good management during the races, good management selecting the riders in the first place. All of these things come down to a pretty tight outfit, and other teams are now starting to take notice. I think Brailsford has got this down. He's been doing it for a long time now. We're talking 15 years plus in a sports-driven environment, and so it's all really coming to a head at the moment. I've got to say that I think that most of these complaints are coming from riders because Sky itself is absolutely dominating and continuing to do better and better and better. And so when you have a team that's coming out of the era that cycling has come out of and they're using methods that aren't necessarily traditional but they're working and you can't say that they're doing any underhanded methods, all they're doing is really rehearsing exactly what they're going to do on race days. They're honing in the roles and the numbers and then just sticking to a race plan Yes, it is boring, but if you're a Sky fan, you're not complaining. If you're a Wigo or a Froome or a Port fan, you're not complaining. So it's only the other teams that are coming at this. And so I think there's no problem with it because there's always going to be riders that ride with passion. And we saw in the welter last year when Contador won, you can never, ever underestimate riders with lots of talent and even bigger hearts. Alrighty then, let's get to the nuts and bolts. And this week, I am going to talk about your neuromuscular secret source, moto pacing. Moto pacing is hard, fun, and most of all, dangerous, which kind of makes it the best thing about it. But it's a great training mix, in my opinion, and and it is popular. Popular with the pros. There's lots of videos popping up. You can see Tyler Farrar, Theo Boss... Taylor Finney, even Aquatil from back in the day, favored intensity in his training of two to two and a half hours of motor pacing behind a car or a bike. And so today I'm going to look at why motor pacing is the secret source of race prep, strictly road prep. Using a motorcycle can help you work on your leg speed. You can help you do tempo work, work explosiveness, train with the group in crosswinds, practice sprinting from high speeds. You name it, it can pretty much do it. The two main scenarios where motor pacing is useful in your training situation are number one, solo. So I'm not just talking about isolation by location. I'm also talking about training goals that are different to other people that you ride with or types of competitions you do are different or the time of the year. So everyone's wrapping up and you're going into a cyclocross season. You may want to do it then because you just can't get the bunch rides or the other riders around you to simulate races exactly the same. 
Number two is bunch rides where you can't control the other riders, meaning that they're not as good as you or they don't or won't want to ride fast when you do. About the only times that you're going to get a bunch ride to match what you want to do if it's intensity is if there's a specific club ride during the week or you're in a team and the DS is telling you how to train. So outside of that, it's going to be really hard to find the kind of speed that motor pacing will give you. Now, let's move into why the hell you would want to do it. And the first reason, the physical reason, and it really comes down to specificity. So we have talked about specificity in the past about training your body for the exact demands that the event that you've chosen requires. And so this is exactly the same reason why you would now want to adapt your pedaling and the pressure that you put on the pedals, so the power that you produce, how you produce that power and how will you produce it in your race. You're not going to go and train for a race that demands you ride at 80 RPM for two hours and then 100 for one hour. You're not going to go and try and average that out over three hours. You're going to try and replicate that exactly so that your body is prepared for that event. And what it comes down to, it's not just your cardiovascular endurance that needs to be trained to win bike races. Speed and speed endurance and even your FTP are reliant on neuromuscular function. Neuromuscular function sounds complicated. Well, doesn't everything in the body sound complicated, but it simply means how fast you can contract a muscle, how strongly you can contract it, and how long you can keep it contracted before relaxing again. There is a definite neuromuscular component to the adaption of pedaling at 50 kilometers versus 40 kilometers, which is kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about riding at a faster speed behind a motorbike. It really does help ensure that your legs are ready for the more variable neuromuscular demands of racing, which is really, really hard to replicate otherwise. To give you a better idea, I will refer to Hunter Allen and Andy Coggins' use of quadrant analysis, which basically talks about four different types of power. Four quadrants, high pedal speed and high force, such as sprinting at high speed, example crit. Number two, low pedal speed and high force. So these are hard efforts, such as track starts from standing still. Quadrant three, which is low pedal speed and low force. This is just cruising around. Quadrant four, high pedal speed and low force. So this is like spinning fast down a downhill. So that's pretty hard to imagine just from my voice speaking. So if we can move it back to motor pacing, we can see essentially what we're trying to do is move from one quadrant to another. So to create power, you either apply a huge amount of force at a low speed, low RPM, or a lower force at a high speed, higher RPM. Most of our power training is in the high force, lower speed realm. So this is talking about a lower cadence with a higher force on the pedal. So whether it's strength endurance up a hill or you're just dropping it down a couple of harder gears and using a lower cadence, trying to adapt your muscles to the harder effort. But when you move into a race situation, it is going to be more about spinning a gear and applying less pressure or force on the pedals. So motor pacing moves you from quadrant two to quadrant one. Remember, quadrant one is high pedal speed and high force. Quadrant two, low pedal speed and high force. So it's like doing sprints on a slight downhill. Your legs are going to go really fast 
and the force is pretty light even though you're generating more watts than you would if you just rolled along and jumped in a huge gear and just mashed it. So in this case, doing the downhill sprint is much closer to the finish of a race than if you just mash on a huge gear from standing still. Motor pacing is much more specific when it comes to the way that you will be generating your power while motor pacing and the way that you'll do it in the race. So all of this helps with the adaption of the neuromuscular system. On a side note, this is really an interesting way to think about tweaking your training from this point in, because each of us have strengths and weaknesses in the way that we prefer to create the watts. You know, some like pedaling faster and some prefer pedaling slower, but pushing harder on the pedals or whatever it is. The key is, how do you actually do this in your race? Do you consistently ride the same way that you do in training when you race? Because the demands of going up a really steep hill at 15% with a 23-tooth cog on the back is going to be a lot different if you're training up a hill that's 10%, but you're riding with a 25-tooth cog on the back. So it's not only how you do it in your training, but you need to think about how you will do it in your racing and then train for that adaption. This is the important distinction to make because what motor pacing is doing here is trying to simulate races as closely as possible to the actual effort that you will be doing in them. And it's something that you would struggle to do on your own because you just can't get up to the speed that the bike goes. You can't sit in behind and do the efforts. You can't move out if you're sprinting at such a high speed, you know, there's all these factors that go into it. And that's why I really believe it's the secret sauce as far as getting your body to adapt to racing and preparing you for the race itself. So if you have a think about exactly what type of neuromuscular response you need for your type of racing and where you can place this in your training, other than practice races, it's going to go a long way in helping your body adapt to that specificity principle. So moving on now to other ways that motor pacing actually helps. And skills is a really big one. It's something that you would not think about because it's something that is not at the forefront when you're thinking motor pacing. Okay, you do need certain skills to adapt and survive a motor pacing session. But think about your aero position. So think about the way that you actually draft the motorbike or another rider. If you're behind a bike going at speeds that are well above what you're used to and you can handle, you're going to need every little bit of advantage that you can get when you're tucked in behind that bike. Otherwise, you're just going to get dagged off the end and that's the end of your session. So as far as adjusting your position so that you can get the most benefit from the draft and refining this so you're comfortable in this position over long periods of time is going to go a long way in improving your efficiency on the bike and where you position yourself in a bunch and behind riders and how much energy you use during a race, which is super important when it comes to the end. Other skills that you can develop are dropping the wheel. So the sprinting technique of actually dropping the wheel before you come around and sprint past a rider. Doing this at high speed is entirely different to doing this at 
30Ks, 35Ks. If you're doing this at 50, 55, 60 kilometers an hour, the sensations are so much different because when you're coming out of their slipstream, you're getting smacked in the face with wind, even if it's not a heavy headwind that's moving at you when you get around them. So learning how to drop the wheel and then ride past someone smoothly is not only going to be good for your efficiency and the kick, but it's going to train you to know how to really get the timing right when it comes to a sprint at the end of a race. Another really important one is getting back on a wheel. So doing an effort or rolling around and then jumping back on a wheel. Knowing how to do this properly is so crucial for, number one, your reputation when you're riding, but definitely for conserving energy and not getting into trouble and potentially crashing. There is lots of ways that you can potentially crash once your brain starts turning to mush at high levels of intensity. So as soon as you start doing motor pacing, you're training your brain to be able to focus on the wheel that you're going to get behind. You're going to move in smoothly. You're not going to waste any energy because the biggest thing is if a rider comes past you and then you have to use an extra little bit of energy to get back in behind them, that's more energy you don't have for the end of the race. So as soon as a rider comes past you, if you can just slot in between them and that becomes natural to you, then that is going to save you so much time and energy when it comes to moving around a bunch or being in a breakaway. Also, having this awareness and the reflexes at this speed and with a mushy brain from working hard is really going to pay off when it comes to this whole efficiency and energy thing. Also, riding in a pace line or an echelon under heavy load. You may not be used to doing this. You may not have training rides where you can go out and do this. But if you can get a couple of other riders together and go and practice this under a fast race pace situation, then it's really going to help the way that you slot in. Much like getting on the back of a wheel, if you can smoothly get around and learn how to do echelons properly, it's going to save you so much effort when it comes down to racing. Now, the final reason why you would do this, the mental element of actually sitting behind a motorbike is so important because it trains you to get used to an inconsistent person in front of you. So, When you're out on your own, you're controlling the pace. Or when you're in a group ride, you can potentially control the pace if you can get to the front. But if you're riding behind a motorbike, just because of the nature of it, so they will, I'm sure the rider at some point, if you're just going out for a consistent ride, they'll try and be as smooth as possible, but there will still be fluctuations depending on the road conditions, you know, traffic conditions, whatever it is. There are always going to be slight fluctuations that you can't control, but you still want to sit in that slipstream to get the best benefit possible. So in order to do that, you have to go back and forth. You have to use energy to stay on. You have to use energy to back off. And if you're going up a hill or you're putting in an effort and you're right on the edge and you have to get a little bit more just to creep back up and then stay there, you know, all of these things are going to add to your mental strength with the ability to hold a wheel. Holding a wheel is so important. You can forget the numbers in a race because at a certain time, it's just going to be about sticking with a group of riders or one other rider, whatever the situation, and that is going to be the most important thing when it comes to getting to the line first. So having a situation where the pace is out of your control and all you have to do is just focus on staying right there on the wheel, that is going to help you mentally when it comes to a race situation where someone's trying to ride you off their wheel. It's super important and I think totally underrated when it comes to talking about motor pacing itself, but it is 
probably my largest weakness. If I'm not feeling good on the day, then I'm my own worst enemy when it comes to sticking on a wheel and knowing that I have the ability to do it. So the difference in that scenario is all brain and not body. Training the brain in this way is the most effective way for me to realize that my body can push harder. I can stay with this person. And if I have a really good rider that is piloting the motorbike, then they can push me even further than I would think that I could do or that I would do on my own, which is exactly the same as a race situation. Another thing that I just thought about too is the accountability of having someone else riding. So you've lined someone up, they're using a motorbike, whether it's yours or theirs or whatever, getting them out there and doing the time, you're not going to want to stuff them around. So you're not going to want to slack off when it comes to doing the efforts. They're going to be looking at your numbers so they can help you with your actual riding and staying on track when it comes to a specific intensity for your workout. I think that there is so much benefit in that. Plus, they can also pick you up if you blow up and crack and fall to pieces. I don't know how they're going to get you home, but Anyway, having someone there that would be able to help you get home when you blow up is another really good reason that motor pacing works. And so the equipment. Now, the equipment, it seems obvious. You just have a motorbike or a scooter and you just jump behind it and go for a ride. Well, yes, but it can be made a lot better with a little bit of preparation, especially something like a roller at the back of the motorbike. So you're not bumping into just a static object, which is going to cause more trouble and potentially more danger. But having a roller on the back, whether it's a paint roller or something or a roller from a bastardized set of rollers or something is going to actually help you to nudge the bike gently if it comes down to it, and then you'll be able to get away with it. I have hit a roller at a pretty high speed and survived. It's not going to help you in every situation, so don't expect it to absorb all of your energy if you move up on it quickly, but it will help you under those slight situations. Me nudging the roller in that one time convinced me enough never to do it again, and so I try as hard as I can not to do it because it really gets my heart racing doing this stuff. Another element that's linked to the actual rider themselves is the communication and how you figure out you're going to communicate. So it's not going to be by voice. Unless you slow down after an interval, there's no other way that you can be talking to each other. So you've got to figure out a way that you can communicate with each other, whether it's stop, signal. Essentially, it'd be great if you just had a rider on the motorbike that has ridden bikes and knows how to ride like a rider. So they're dodging any obstacles on the road, they're pointing out obstacles, they're moving their hand behind the back if, if there's a car on the side of the road or whatever it is. And they, they're very familiar with that. But outside of that, just figuring out a system between the two of you and then working with that, you can have a whistle if you're going to do sprints, which makes it easier to go forth and back rather than looking to aim towards a stop sign or something that's in the distance. But basically, just figure out something that you can both work with. Other challenges that present themselves, well, the other main challenge that presents itself is finding a stretch of road that doesn't have stop signs or pedestrian crossings or traffic lights or anything like that. In the past, I've used a quiet stretch of road anywhere from five kilometers on. Um, Anything shorter than that, you're really going to be in trouble unless you're doing short, sharp efforts. But At the speeds that you're going, which you're talking about 50, 55 kilometers here, roads become very short over those distances. So you're wanting at least 15 kilometers without any brakes in it so that you can get a good run of consistency in before you have to turn around. It's probably 
one of the hardest things, other than finding the rider themselves, finding a great stretch of road that matches exactly what you want to do in regards to the workout that you've prepared. So as the Northern Hemisphere wakes up and comes out of winter, now might be a good time to revisit the training program and just take a look at where you could possibly drop in some motor pacing sessions so that you can have a structured plan over period, over weeks or months, so you can get the maximum benefits from this. There is a few ways that people approach motor pacing when they try and put them into their overall plan. And the first one is a final tweak before the peak. So say a month out from your A race where it's just building that speed and speed endurance and it's not there to build fitness. The other side of that is heavily incorporating that from very early on and using it in your training program over a longer period to build the effort just like you would with standard intervals. My take is kind of in the middle of that. It's I try, if I can, to be as consistent with it as possible, but what I really use it for is getting prepared for big races where I don't have the leg speed coming out of either a base or a build block. In my mind, I see it as training to race, if that makes any sense. You know, all training, of course, is training to race on some level, but this is the actual nitty-gritty of getting my body prepared for the speeds that only racing can produce. So I've got four workouts here that I'll go through and you can check out on the website and see if any of these work with your current training program and you can slot them in anywhere. So workouts, number one, an hour to two and a half hours behind the motorcycle with no sprints, just consistent high-speed ride. It's simulating something more like a time trial because of the consistent nature of the riding. But you can do this in preparation for a road race as well because you are going to have slight gains and slight losses your body is going to have to compensate for when you're doing this. Just make sure that you have someone riding the motorbike that can control the pace when you start to fade. Number two, one hour fast behind the motorcycle with at least... 25% of the ride increasing in speed to the point where the rider is just about ready to crack and then hold it there. This can be done in isolation or on the back end of a long endurance ride to further simulate a race. So riding high tempo for a couple of hours and then jumping on the back of a motorbike to bring you home will really give your body the feel of racing. That is racing in a nutshell basically. A couple of hours of tempo, maybe some short, sharp efforts in that, and then winding up at the end where it's going to be an all-out effort till you get to the line. So just simulating this at a higher pace than you could normally do on your own with something that gives you the motivation to bring you home super hard, super heavy, is going to be the best way to prepare yourself for a road race. Number three, one and a half to two and a half hours behind the motorcycle, either single or in groups, with an easy warm-up, followed by sprints past the motorcycle to designated spots on the road, or seconds, so this is where the whistle could come in handy, but the motorcycle is staying at a consistent speed, and then you have to jump back on the moto when it comes by. It's good for technical skills, as I mentioned before, but it's also one hell of a workout. I don't know about you, but with no time for recovery, this one is a gut buster but it'll get you ready for attacks and counterattacks as well as the final sprint. Number four and the final one, it's basically the same as the workout above, 
but it just have a group of four or less and roll over. So slightly less difficult than number three, but still a hard workout and to get you ready for team time trials or breakaways where you're going to have to be working in a similar fashion with the riders around you. This is going to get you ready for that higher pace race. So to wrap that up, I really hope that for the people that didn't know much about motor pacing that's given you some new information, and for the ones that do, it's amped you up to get out there behind the motorbike. Who knows whether it is illegal where you do it or not. It's not illegal where I am right now, so I'm totally stoked that I don't have any cops to worry about. The only thing I've got to worry about is surviving. Alrighty, moving straight along to the tech hacks and products section. This week, I'm going to give a shout out to another podcast, Velo Beats by John Brainard. He's the mastermind behind this and he must be a DJ or a DJ in a former life because he drops super fat mixes when it comes to training music that can get you absolutely pumped. It's not only music, but he's dropping in pros talking, commentary from big races. It's really fun. It really gets me amped when I'm out doing hard session. The high tempo gets me cranking. I'm not always into the music that he plays, but generally that's a side note because I'm not focused on what is happening as long as something is moving me forward and I'm going hard. I would definitely check out the mix, Get Off the Fucking Road. It's a hip-hop mix which floats my boat. I'm totally into it. I would get on that. You can check it out on iTunes and he has a website which I've linked to in the show notes. I've just got one question for you though, John. What is up with the bike setup? Anyway, let's now move to the quote from the top of the show. Did you get it? It's Andrew Pitbull Talansky. It's interesting that he's popped up in Paris this week. He's not a surprise. He is young, but he, he has been around for a few years and Last year was his breakout season, but he's moving up with the big boys this year. If you want an interesting take on Paris-Nice and an interesting take on Talansky's race tactics or lack of race tactics, I highly recommend you check out How the Race Was Won by Cosmo Cantalano. I hope I got that right, Cosmo, but I will link to it in the show notes. It's super fun, super smart, super sharp. I'm totally into it, but back to Talansky, he has said that this year is being built around the tour, and from his performance so far this year, it looks like he might be able to hang with the big boys, but he has got a lot to learn. And that is it, everybody. Till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the herb box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 